So we're talking about envy, and envy is a sin. We've talked about that. We've talked about how envy slays self, and it will rot us, to use the Bible's terminology about it. It will rot us from the inside out. And yet, if you're anything like me, envy is a sin or something, if you're not a Christian, you might just see it this way. It's something bad that sneaks up on us. In fact, I've noticed through this series, just in conversations with people, uh, that it's a sin that can kind of be like a, a major part of our lives for years and years and years. And we don't even realize it because I've had like uh, two or three people say this to me. I didn't know I envied, but now I see it. And they're like, well, I have this broken relationship. I have this problem. I have this kind of, uh, you know, hole in me um, where, where I just don't feel complete. And, and I never really knew until the last couple of weeks when you started showing us what the Bible said about envy, that this was actually an envy problem. I thought it was an anger problem. I thought it was a, a, a just the other person's problem and that they were not likable. I thought it was a family thing, you know, just a family dynamic. But now I see that I actually have an envy problem. And it's weird because our other sins, all the other bad stuff that you and I do, we almost know it right away, right? Like if I went and I stole something, I would think, shouldn't be doing this right now, shouldn't have stolen that. And then I would go home and I, not everybody probably, but I would be like, oh, I'm horribly guilty. I feel guilty. I'm going to jail. I'm going to prison. You know, I'm guilty. This is bad. Same with the lie. Something that, you know, we might see as inconsequential as, as envy sometimes. But as soon as we lie most of the time, for most people who have not become habitual liars, we, we're just thinking like, shouldn't have done that. Why didn't I tell the truth? And then there's a level of guilt and it's like, I, I they wouldn't have been mad at me? Why did I do that? What was the point of that? Now I'm going to get in more trouble later. Why did I lie? But with envy, it's like we're like three years in and all of a sudden it's like, man, I'm really envious of that person and it's made me really mean to them and I never even thought about it before. I think some people, some people have not just been three years in. You laugh, but I think some people are like their whole lives and they have problems with their siblings because their parents gave them something and, and they didn't give them something and they got the hand-me-down clothes. I heard that example from somebody this week and they got the hand-me-down stuff and they never got anything new. And so you're like, you're in your life and you're, you're 40, 50, 60 years old and you're like, well, my, my brother or sister, they're just not that nice and I don't really like them. But what it comes down to is you're envious. And maybe now because of this sermon series, you're realizing that. But uh, it's weird because as I prepared for this sermon series, I was like, and I said this last week, I think, too, but it was one of these sermon series, as we, we cover every year, if you're a visitor, one of the uh, seven deadly sins. And so we just kind of take one a year and look at it. And for me, it's been a life-changing experience because uh, it's shown me some things about my life that, uh, that I need to fix and that I continue to work on and that are, are struggles for me uh, and, and why they're a big deal in my life uh, but this one, I thought like, man, this is going to be a great sermon series for maybe like two or three people in our church. And the rest of them, they'll say, good job, you know, but it won't really matter. They'll just say, that was interesting. But already I've had more conversations than I normally have with people who are like, that's, that's something I need to pay attention to. And 
I saw this article this week that I just stumbled upon, actually. Um, and there's this big study by a, a psychology journal uh, on the topic of envy, actually, which is really nice when you're preaching on it and you stumble upon this, this article. And the study showed that more than 75% of subjects reported having experienced envy within the last year. And, and what they found, it was really interesting, is, is they kind of gave these people areas where they could pick what they were envious about, scholastic success, social success, looks, romantic success, monetary success, occupational achievements, luck or other. That's weird to be envious of somebody's luck, but I guess that happens. Um, maybe they just saw somebody win the lottery and they were envious of that. But, uh, and what they found, this is really fascinating to me, is that throughout your life, you change what you are envious about, but you in some ways just continue to be envious. I mean, people, not you personally, but, but people continue to be envious even though they become envious of different things. And so we go through kind of this process in life where at some age you're probably envious of somebody's looks and then you're envious of their romantic relationship and then you're envious of their, uh, their monetary success and then at the end, you know, you might be envious of their uh, occupational achievements and what they've been able to do and you didn't. And so we just kind of progress and envy, but most of us would think like me, like this isn't a big problem. But when we start to think about envy and we look deeper, we begin to see that it's a sneaky sin. It's a sin that sneaks up on us and can really hurt us for years and years and years and years and years and years, and years without us ever even knowing that we were doing it in the first place. And in the book of James, I think he gives us the reason for that because he shows us where envy comes from and in doing so, I think he shows us why it's such a sneaky sin. This is how he begins in James 3, 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that come, comes from wisdom. So James is writing to this group of persecuted Christians. It's kind of the, the whole book of James. He's writing to these Christians who are being persecuted for their faith, and they're in different churches around the Asia Minor, Asia Minor area. And they have a problem in these churches that he's writing to, and the, and the problem is that these people had made the Christian faith all about what you believe and what you say but not anything about what you do. And so the prevailing idea in these churches is like, as long as I can talk a good game and I mentally assert certain things to be true, then it doesn't matter what I do with my life because, oh, God will forgive me. Kind of sounds like the American church today. And so James is writing this book to these people who think they're pretty wise because they have the right answers and they can say the right things. That makes what James says make just a little bit more sense because when he says who is wise and understanding among you, he's calling them out. You think you're pretty wise, but let me tell you how you can actually find out if you are indeed wise. And it comes from a good life. Alternative translation, better translation, a beautiful life. James says, if you are wise and you have an understanding about spiritual things, then the way that you can know it is through living a beautiful life. Beautiful refers to objects whose appearance has a certain harmonious perfection. James is saying, if you are wise and understanding, live beautifully. 
Now, here's, here's what we think. Just correct me if I'm wrong later, but correct me if I'm wrong. We think, we think that a wise, understanding life is seen by being normal, is seen by being slightly above average in things like academics and social status and wealth. We think that being wise and understanding has a lot to do with being smarter than everybody else in the room. But we don't often go, wait a minute, here are the wise people and the understanding people. It's people whose lives are beautiful. James explains what a beautiful life looks like. It's a life full of deeds that are done in humility. Deeds is a word that is also translated meek or mild, and it refers to power under control. Uh, some famous Christian, I think Beth Moore, has that going around on Facebook right now, that little quote that meekness is power under control, and I didn't steal her from, it, from her. I knew it long before her, but it popped up on my news feed, and I felt the need to clarify that I had it first. Um, and it's used in other passages like Colossians 3.12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Last week, your homework was to go through the Colossians 3 passage to take off the sins that Paul lists there and then to add these things and say, God, will you help me to be you know, wise and, and humble and kind and gentle and patient. And one of those words is humility. Another place it's used is in 1 Corinthians 4, 21. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with the rod of discipline or shall I come to you in love with a gentle spirit? In that verse, it's set up against coming with a rod and in an angry way. And so the word, really what it's getting to is, is deeds that are done in a way that is soft and kind and gentle and puts other people above you and doesn't come across arrogant or cocky and is good for other people because the Greeks used that word for a gentle breeze or a soothing medicine. And so the idea that James gets to us is that a beautiful life is what demonstrates is what is demonstrated by deeds done in humility. And deeds done in humility are deeds done not for the sake of self, but deeds that are done in softness and kindness and gentleness so that other people may be built up, so that other people's lives may be better. There are great examples of this in the Bible. I mean, just so many examples. There's great examples in the real world too, but the biblical examples are awesome. Like a guy named Abraham who's one of the patriarchs of, of Israel, he gives his nephew Lot his choice of land. Now think about the situation with me. Abraham is promised by God, if you don't know the story, that, that he's going to have this wonderful land and he's going uh, to have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And his nephew is traveling around with him. So he has power over his nephew, right? And Abraham, as they're splitting up because their flocks and their herds have become too big, looks at his nephew and says, hey, you take the land that you want and I'll take the other land. He had the power, but he lowered that power in order that somebody else might be built up. It's a wonderful deed done in humility. Uh, another story in the book of Genesis about a guy named Joseph. And uh, the kids for the last three weeks have been going through the story of Joseph because it's really a story of envy. And it begins with envy. Uh, but Joseph, at the end of the story, what the kids are learning about today, is in this great place of power, being second in charge in all of Egypt, which was the greatest empire on earth. 
and his brothers who sold him into slavery in Egypt before his rise to power. They show up needing food because of a very large famine. And Joseph looks at them and he has a choice to make. I can punish them. I can have them killed. I can put them into our slave system. I mean, I could do whatever I want to these people, but he lowers himself. He veils his power. He feeds them. He takes them in. He forgives them. That's meekness. Another story in the Old Testament about a a guy named David who becomes king, and he becomes the greatest king that Israel has ever had and uh, ever will have before Jesus returns and And uh, David is fleeing for his life before he becomes king because he's been promised that he will be king, but there's already a king. And so you know what happens when kings feel threatened in the history of the world, right? They just look for somebody to kill, and some of them just killed everybody around them, it seems like. But Saul, the current king, is like, you're never going to become king. I'm going to kill you. And so David spends like a chunk of his life running around the wilderness trying to avoid Saul, trying to avoid being killed by the current king, and one day he's in a cave, and Saul wanders into the cave, and David can kill him, and he knows he's there, but Saul can't see David, and David can see Saul, and David just lets him go. This is an act of meekness, an act of humility, because he refuses, in his words, to kill the Lord's anointed one, the king, even though he knows that someday God will make him king and that it could benefit him greatly, and he wouldn't have to run around for his life, literally, uh, for any longer. He, he lets Saul live. And then you look at the life of Jesus. I mean, the most beautiful life that's ever existed. Even if you're not a Christian and you just kind of know about Jesus, you know that he probably lived a more beautiful life than you or most people that you know. And why was his life so beautiful? Why do we look at his life and go, that is a life to be modeled after? It's because he had so much power. But yet he did not use that power to build himself up, but instead to build others up, to heal and to to restore and to fix and to mend and to feed and to lead people into his kingdom. That's a beautiful life. So James just gets to really the heart of what we already know. And that is a beautiful life is dictated by the humble deeds that we do. And James wants us to know that wisdom is not seen by being smarter than everybody else, but it's seen by a beautiful life, a life that is filled with humble deeds. Now in James 1.5, he talks about wisdom a little more, and we're going to come back to that, but just kind of put that in your head and, and think about that. In James 1.5, he says something about wisdom that, that we'll look at in just a minute. But James continues here in chapter 3, but if you harbor bitter envy... And selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. I want you to notice bitter envy, bitter envy. We're talking about envy here, bitter envy. I mean, sharp envy. And James looks at these Christians and goes, if these things are in you, then I do not want you to boast about it or deny the truth. I don't want you to pretend that it's a good thing when it's clearly and obviously a bad thing. Now you go, wait a minute, given what we've talked about over the last couple weeks, what the Bible says about envy, is there any possible way that anybody could say that this is a good thing? And we've talked about how we don't like envy, we don't like the feeling of envy when it's in our lives and we're looking at somebody else going, I want what you have, I have negative feelings because you have that which I want. Uh, We don't enjoy it, it's not a sin that's fun for us, so how could anybody think that it's a good thing? Well, 
mentioned this already, but just think about the American dream. I mean, I think from the time our kids are very small, we teach them that if they just envy enough and work hard enough to get that which they envy, then their lives will be better than if they hadn't. I mean, we, we, we just say you want to be successful and all that, but think about what we do to show what success is. We point to other people and say, hey, that's what you can achieve. That's who you can be. That's what you can have if you just work hard enough. I think in some ways the American dream is just built upon envying other people. Look what they did. Want it for yourself. And feel passionate enough about wanting it for yourself that you work hard. We see it in sports. I mean, so many guys want to be the greatest of all time. Being great is not what drives them. Being their absolute best top of their game is not what drives them. Envy is what drives them. I know that somebody else, that Michael Jordan, is the greatest of all time, and I want to be the greatest of all time. And we look at those guys and say, that is what it takes to succeed. I look at guys, just to be fully honest, who aren't that way and think, I don't want you on my team. And so we've built up envy as this positive in the world of sports. Saw this article this week, where a guy, an article where a guy said this, the difference between greed and envy is that the former suggests investors will join a bubble situation just because the trend shows that there is money to be made in a trade. Yet investors may be investing in bubbly times because envy had kicked in when we see someone else enjoying the wealth that we also covet. This in turn drives us to copy that person's actions in an attempt to have what he has. Envy makes the stock market better, according to this article. I mean, that's exactly what he's saying. There's a recent article saying when people envy, then our stock market moves forward because more people buy and less people sell because they want what they have. I saw this other article on envy, and the author said envy is a natural, notice this part, if not particularly, particularly useful response sometimes, and we all feel it to greater or lesser degrees at times. In America, we've made envy a positive. And so while we have now seen, if you've been around in the Bible, that it's something that's bad, that will slay you, that will cause you to do evils that you never expected, that doesn't feel good, and we don't really like it when we sense it in ourselves, we still have made it a positive. And so had the people that James is writing to. And James says, what I want you to do is I want you to stop lying to yourselves. I want you to stop boasting about envy because these are not indicative of a beautiful life. They are opposite of what drives a beautiful life, humble deeds. And then he says this, this thing that gives us the source of envy. And it's important and it's valuable because if you read this and you walk away going, well, envy's not that big of a deal then you really don't care what the Bible has to say, what God has to say to us through the Bible. And maybe that fits you, but at least admit it. I mean, maybe you just go, I don't care about what the Bible says, but if you walk away and go, well, it's just envy, uh, after reading this verse, after looking at this verse that I'm about to read to you, then you just really can't care about what the Bible says, because this is what James says. Such wisdom, wisdom that... that is pushed forward by selfish ambition and bitter envy. That wisdom does not come from heaven, not from God, but it is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. The word earthly is bad most of the time in the Bible. And that doesn't mean that the earth is inherently bad. It's inherently sinful. And the systems that kind of drive this world, 
uh, this is what the Bible describes as earthly, push us away from God and not towards God. I mean, that's pretty obvious, right? When you turn on a TV, and I like a lot of good TV shows, but, but there's still in those TV shows, some of which I really like, there is still, and you can see it, a, a push away from the things of God, not towards the things of God. And so it's not just TV. There's a lot of systems in our world that, that push us away from God and the things of God and the things that God wants us to do. I mean, the most popular websites year in and year out are pornography websites. And uh, even, even psychologists now are starting to say, wow, this pornography thing's really bad. And we, we knew that as Christians a long time ago, but the whole internet system seems to be driven by getting you to lust and moving you towards pornography. And James says that that, that same kind of worldly system is what is driving bitter envy. And then he says, this is just as strong. It's unspiritual. Another way to translate that is natural. It's not a very common word in the Bible, but it, ref- it refers to the things that just come naturally. And I described how children at birthday parties just immediately have a natural tendency to envy when they see somebody else get a present. It's like instantaneous, without hesitation. Nobody has to go, hey, you should really envy that, you know? I mean, the American dream, baby. No, it's like you just envy. It's like, I want that. I want that pirate ship, and you have that pirate ship, and I want want that pirate ship and now I'm crying until my parents finally take me home because I'm tired but I'm really envious I'm not even tired you know I mean if we could admit it and another way that could be used is for things that animals do I want to show you a couple of pictures uh, to demonstrate this Uh, my dog before he died several years ago um, he died just a little bit ago but uh, several years ago he found a dog for us her name was Zoe this is her and uh Zoe was like a horse, by the way, just to, to tell you about Zoe. I mean, my dog was very large. Um, I think the highest he got was about 93 pounds. Um, and, uh, and Zoe, you can't see it in this picture, Zoe made Roy look so little. It was just unbelievable to see it. Uh, I gave her like a whole block of cheese to capture her. Um, and she was microchipped, but the people wouldn't call us back. And so we had her for a weekend. It was a holiday weekend, so we had her for three, three days. Um, and here's a picture of Zoe with some of Roy's toys, okay? Now, I want to show this next picture. This is Roy's response to this. Roy stole all the toys back. <laughs> and here's what Bryn posted on Facebook. Um, I was looking for this picture the other day, and, and I saw what Bryn posted. And this is like four years ago. Uh, she said and about the second picture. This was her, her, her um, comment. Stealing as many toys as possible and glaring at Zoe since she has another one. (laughs) And this was the situation we had for a whole weekend. And James, what he says to us is when we envy, we act naturally. We act like animals. You have it, I want it. It's something that dogs do immediately. In fact, I I found an article this week that I didn't read at all, but it was just, I was looking for other stuff. And and it was about the envy of dogs. Uh, And and it's like a whole, like, line of study, apparently, about why dogs actually envy other dogs. And it's because they're natural beings that just are driven by their instincts. And James says, when you envy, it's just driven by these instincts, not by maturity, not by growth, not by wisdom, and not by God. And then this last part is scary. It says that envy is driven, it comes from demonic forces. 
And in case you think there's a way around this, I mean, demonic refers to the things of Satan. It can also be translated devilish. Envy comes from Satan. Now, I've read the Bible a few times through, and I didn't look this up, but it might be the only sin in which this is stated. I mean, some of the big sins that, that we think about and we talk about and we get real mad about, I'm not sure there's a statement in the Bible about some of those sins where, where it's stated that it comes straight from Satan. Now, we could say all sin comes from Satan, and I believe that in some ways, but, I mean, this is a pretty straightforward statement by an author inspired by God to write it that this wisdom that is full of envy and selfish ambition comes from Satan himself. I just want to put up a picture to remind you uh, about, you know, demons. Just because. Because it's easy just to read it and not think about it, right? Just to go, oh, Satan. But we're talking about, like, all the scary movies. This is where envy comes from. We think, like, when stuff moves in our house, you know, just kind of out of nowhere, that's scary. Oh, man, might be a demon. But, but James says, wait, when you envy... That's when you need to start looking around for demons in your life. That's when you know that Satan is at work. Envy is demonic. Let that sink in. Envy is demonic. That's a pretty good reason to get rid of it. Satan wants you to be jealous and envious. uh, Words we're using synonymously in this series. And the big question is, Why? I mean, why this sin? Why does this sin get this treatment in the book of James? I mean, why? He says, this is not where wisdom comes from. And then he gives us these two examples. And you would have thought he would say, like, I don't know, murder or something. But why envy? Why? And I think it's because of verse 16. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice you see the reason that i think satan pushes us to envy so much that that this is a sin that's stated to come right from demonic forces is that that i think the devil especially if you're a christian is gonna have a real hard time getting you to go commit murder on the spot it's gonna be real difficult just out of nowhere the thought pops into your head oh go shoot somebody probably not for most of us just gonna be like oh yeah i'm just gonna give in to that one But if we envy, we'll not pay attention to it. And if we envy long enough and strong enough, eventually we might hate somebody. And I started this sermon series by saying I've hated one person ever. And it was a person that I never even met. And I really had, at the time, not now, praise God, uh, I I would have loved for them to no longer exist. What's the next step? You don't want somebody to exist? The next step, and praise God, I never got to this point, is to make them to cease existing. And I think Satan knows that if you start at killing somebody, he's not going to get very far with you. But if he starts at envy, he may. And James says, look, where you have selfish ambition and envy, you have disorder in every type of evil practice. Every type of evil practice. The wars that we see, the the violence that exists in our world, the, the stuff that you deal with on a daily basis that you never connect to envy, it may have its source. And people feeling negatively because they want what somebody else has. 
That's a pretty good reason to try to get rid of it. The other word, not as strong, I mean, every evil practice, I mean, that's big time. But this other word, disorder, is a word that James used earlier in the book. And when he used it earlier in the book, in James chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, he uses it as double-minded. Listen to those verses. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all that they do. You see, there James is talking about wisdom. And he's saying, if you want wisdom, then ask God for wisdom. And wisdom for James is virtually just doing what God wants from you. And he says, there's one thing that's going to prevent God from actually giving you that wisdom. And it's if you're double-minded. And if you read through the book of James, what you find is that double-minded doesn't kind of mean, and this is how this verse is understood a lot, thinking that God may or may not give you wisdom, that has nothing to do with it for James. Because for James, faith is not just some mental assertion. What, what double-mindedness is for James is having one part of your heart aimed at, at serving and living for God and the other part of your heart aimed at serving and living for yourself. And so when James gets to chapter three and he says selfish ambition and envy lead to every type of badness, every type of evil, but it also leads to double-mindedness, what he's saying is that envy will pull you away from God. It will make it so that with part of your mind and part of your heart and part of your soul, you desire to serve God, but with the other part, you want to serve yourself and do whatever you need to do to have the things that you want. This is dangerous. I mean, James is saying that that envy and selfish ambition come from Satan, and they come from Satan because when Satan can bring them into your life, then it will pull you away from God, and eventually, it may cause you to do every sin, every type of sin, every evil practice. And envy will cause you to be spiritually unstable, and envy comes from being spiritually unstable. And yet, we treat it with so little weight. Saw another article this week, and I mentioned one last week about making little boys envious of your little boy's room, but I saw this one. Six envy-inducing curly hairstyles and how to rock them. I'll repeat. If you replace it with murder, it's no longer funny. Six murder-inducing curly hairstyles, you know? I mean, we just, we're like, you can't say murder. I mean, that doesn't work. If you put any other sin in there, we're like, that's a big deal. But here's, here's what I think. This is just a thought. This doesn't come from James. This is just my guess. I think that Satan wants it to not be a big deal because then we won't try to get rid of it. I mean, as long as we can have six envy-inducing hairstyles or 12 ways to make your boy's room the envy of all his friends, and it just seems like a sin that doesn't matter to us at all, as long as that's true, then we're just going to keep doing it, and Satan's going to be taking us down a path that leads to double-mindedness in every evil practice without us ever thinking about its original source. Envy's a big deal. Then James just kind of shows us the anecdote. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure. Then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Last week I said that love was one of the anecdotes to envy, but this week I'll add that wisdom is another anecdote to envy. 
when we have it, when we have wisdom, envy is removed from our lives. In place of it, we'll find purity, peace, considerateness, submissiveness, mercy, good fruit, impartiality, and sincerity. And so the question is, what is wisdom? And we've already seen what wisdom is demonstrated by, have we not? It is deeds done in humility. But when we read, especially in 1 Corinthians, we really get this full definition of wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1.20, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? So it's not the same wisdom. That, that everybody kind of teaches, that everybody apart from Christianity, apart from what the Bible says, you know, kind of teaches. It isn't just being smart. It isn't just being an old guy that, that sits around and says cool things. It's not, uh, it's not, you know, Yoda. That's his name, right? I had to think of his name. Um, I'm not a huge Star Wars guy, as I said, but I do know Yoda. I mean, it's not these little statements. That's not just wisdom where you're like, oh, that sounds so smart. Wisdom is something different. It is godly. 1 Corinthians 1.25, For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. And so this wisdom is better than worldly wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1.30, It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. And so we see that wisdom begins with Jesus. We see that we can only obtain this wisdom if we place our faith in Jesus. And we as Christians know that that means placing our faith in what we celebrate when we celebrate communion, that Jesus died and rose again for the sins of the world. He died on behalf of you so that you might be holy and righteous and have redemption from those sins, forgiveness, and may end up someday in heaven with with him. Wisdom begins with Jesus, but it continues past Jesus if you become a Christian. 1 Corinthians 2, 6 and 7. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. Wisdom is important to our spiritual lives, but it's not the human wisdom. And then Paul in 1 Corinthians 2, 13, this is what we speak, not in words taught to us by human wisdom, but, and this is the, this is the other side, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. Wisdom for Paul and for James is knowing what God wants from you and doing it. You see, you can spend your whole life being driven by the American dream or being the greatest or having what other people have, or, and I said this last week, you can be driven by saying, God, what is it you want from me? Maybe it means I'll have less. Maybe I won't have as as much, but I want to do what you want me to do. And when we do that, this is what James is saying, and this is what the addition is this week. James is saying, when you do that, then you have peace, and there's good things that come out of your life, and you'll produce these deeds done in humility, not every evil practice, and you won't be double-minded because you'll be fully committed to God. Wisdom starts by becoming a Christian and saying, Jesus, I want you, I believe in you, and it continues by seeking the will of God in your life and trusting that the Holy Spirit who comes upon you when you become a Christian will speak to you, and he'll speak to you through his word. James says, wisdom is the answer to your envy. Man, so this is what we've seen just to catch you up before we finish this. I mean, 
the first key that we talked about was just simply saying, God has commanded me not to even covet, not to want what everybody else's is. And that command is good, according to Paul. And so I'm not, I'm not just going to take this command with no weight, with no seriousness, but I'm really going to take seriously not wanting what God has given to somebody else. And I'm going to try to be happy for their blessings. And then last week we talked about how envy gets replaced by love. And so if we'll just start to love people and, and say, God, bless them and, and to do nice things for the people that we envy and to root for the people that we envy, then, then envy will start to dissipate in our lives. And now we just add this. Don't be double-minded, but just want what God wants for your life more than anything else. More than anything else, want what God wants for your life and seek his will. Not just like on a you know, some kind of grand um, theoretical level, but seek his will in your life. God, what is it you want me to do? What is it you want me to do? And here's the problem. Here's the hang up. When we begin to ask the question, what is it that God wants from me? And God, what is the wise, the real wise thing? What's the humble deed that I should be doing right now? We just smack up against cultural norms. Because if you think about it, I mean, just what kind of wisdom would you choose? Not right now in this moment, but before this sermon. Would you choose to know what God wants you to do or this wisdom that's going to move you up forward in your job and make more people like you and get you more respect? I mean, which one would you have chose when you came in here this morning? I'm going to guess that most of us would have said, I want that, you know, that old man wisdom where I just know what to do so that my life is successful and things go well for me and everything is comfortable. I'm going to guess that's what we would have chosen. Or if you have kids, what wisdom are you teaching your kids? I mean, what's the, what's the driving force behind, behind what you're trying to educate your kids in? I mean, is wisdom that you do well in school and you be nice to people and then you, you graduate with good grades and then you go to college and then you get a good job and you work hard so that you can have some money put away and you retire? Is that the driving force of the wisdom you're teaching to your kids? Or is it like, hey, you might need to be broke your whole life, but seek the will of God with all of your heart? really easy to nod along and go yeah baby i mean yeah i want god's wisdom but it just smacks against culture and one more question what wisdom just drives your life right now i mean what you do this week will it be driven by what's kind of the wise thing to get your bills paid or will it be driven by what god wants you to do what the humble deeds are that produce the fruit of god why are you doing what you are doing? Envy's bad. It comes from Satan. So here's what you do. You become a Christian. And then you say, God, I want to be, and I'm not right now. I mean, you'd have to admit that I'm not right now, but I want to be fully devoted to doing what you want for me. So show me what humble deeds I can do this week. And then do them. Prove yourself to be wise. Will you pray with me, Lord? I don't want to take anything lightly that you take seriously. Lord, and man, our church is driven by that, God. I mean, all the movement that we've had at this church has been driven by taking seriously the things that you take seriously and um, taking less seriously uh, things that other people take seriously. And yet, Lord, there's so many of us in this church, even those of us 
you know, who will get up on stage, me, I'm talking about me, uh, we treat envy as nothing. But God, through your servant, James, you've shown us this morning that it's worldly, that it's natural, it's just something a dog would do, and it's demonic. And so I pray, God, maybe for the first time right now in this moment, God, the people in front of me, the people behind me, and those who will listen online would take seriously this sin. And God, I pray first for people that they would become Christians because there's no, there's no way to combat envy if we don't have you in our lives, if we don't accept your gift of salvation, your offer of salvation that you provided through dying and rising again so that we might be forgiven for every moment of envy and every other sin, Lord. So I pray that you would bring people to you. God, for those of us who love you, I pray that you would replace envy, God, in our lives with just a passion to know spiritual realities that are spoken to us in spiritual truths, Lord, in your word and as your Holy Spirit interacts with us. And instead of doing the envious thing, even if it seems culturally normal, even if it seems culturally appropriate, even if it seems culturally the right thing to do, I pray that, God, we wouldn't do that, but we would do what you want us to do, and we would humbly serve people just like you did, Jesus, when you walked around on this earth. Let us live lives, God, that are like you, not using our power to move ourselves forward to obtain that which other people have, but instead, God, using the power, the gifts, the skills, the money, everything that you've given us to serve other people. God, this is hard, but let us not dismiss it in its difficulty as unimportant. I know from conversations that people in our church envy, and some have envied a long time, and uh, part of their, their foundation of their, their lives, God, is, has been laid in envying another. And I pray that, God, you would tear down that foundation, those parts of the foundation, and you would build them up once again in humble deeds that produce peace, righteousness, and mercy, and your good fruit. Thank you for your humility. In your name, amen.